guys, welcome to episode 47 of the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I had the pleasure in interviewing Mr. James Smith, a.k.a. The Tinker. To be honest, this is going to be one of my more harder introductions or more complicated introductions because James doesn't like to be called a strength and conditioning coach and now he doesn't even like to be called a physical preparation coach. But to find out more about James, check out his website, powerdevelopmentinc.com. On this episode, me and James discussed many, many topics it was a really great show, and I hope you guys really enjoy it. Okay. Okay, uh, Coach James Smith, uh, as with every guest that's been on my show, it is a pleasure and an honour to have you on. Um, I brought you over to Ireland back in 2012, and you put on a great uh, day seminar, and um, it's really, really great to have you on the podcast. Just for the my listeners who maybe aren't too familiar with who you are, just fill us in. Thanks for having me on, Robbie. As for who I am, I've worked in a variety of disciplines for the past going on 11 years. The, when working in a team sports realm, I've worked under the heading of physical preparation and working in the private sector. I've covered larger domains and as a consultant, I've covered even larger domains. And to put it briefly, the, the way that I consider myself in the way that I have considered myself different from what the professional titles have suggested over the years is the, the merger of an architect and a general contractor in the context of sport. Hmm. So that's about it. I, I often have heard you say you don't like the title strength and conditioning coach. You, you prefer to be called a physical preparation coach. Why is that? Well, it's funny because... Uh, now it's at the point where I don't even want to be called a, a physical preparation coach, nor, <laughs> nor, nor am I interested in, in working as one. Yeah. The, uh, all of this revolves around the fact that I represent a minority of individuals who entered the profession of coaching not having gone through the traditional ranks, neither via means of mentorship or apprentice or or graduate assistant or intern, none of those things, nor do I have any formal education in anything that is directly related to sports or physical development. Mm. And I look at that clearly as an advantage because I was not limited to any narrow doctrine of thinking or devised curriculum of any particular coach or professor who had a specific agenda, which I've since learned over more than a decade now, are almost universally misdirected in the first place unless we're specifically discussing hard sciences. And so the fact that I've carried much more of a global understanding due to my self-education has allowed me to see the glaring inefficiencies that exist in every single realm of coaching due to the narrow focus of the respective curriculums, whether it's physiotherapy, whether it's physical preparation, whether it's technical tactical coaching. There's a huge degree of disharmony and a lack of synergy as a result of the narrow fields. And as a result, I, it, when we wind back the clock to when I first entered the profession, I entered through the window of physical preparation. However, I was immediately met with frustration. Mm. Be because I had self-educated myself to the point 
where I was competent in handling a much larger responsibility than physical preparation alone. Mm-hmm. However, as the industry is built, it is very much narrow and tight to limiting most professionals to the specific working titles under which they operate. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so therefore, when I would look at technical movement inefficiencies under the supervision of a technical tactical coach regardless of sport or if I saw glaring mistakes being made in physiotherapeutic remedies under the heading of sports medicine or athletic training or physiotherapy depending on where you are in the world again the 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 realm of physical preparation in most organizations wants to limit you to only that aspect so and the same goes for any other department looking over the shoulder of the department adjacent to them. So mm-hmm. there's an incredible amount of disharmony. And as a result, where it where went first from me not being able to make sense out of the term strength and conditioning because it's redundant and far too limiting in terms of what the two words suggest and what is relevant for an athlete to develop, now I no longer am even comfortable with the words physical preparation because again while it's a more accurate term to describe the physical enhancement of an athlete's skill set as it relates to any particular sport it's still quite confining in that the exclusionary nature of the title implies that that's about all you are good at in assisting an, an athlete in developing so um, and, and that may be fine and good for a variety of individuals who are satisfied working within the narrow frame of reference of technical, tactical development or of physical development or of physiotherapeutic remedies yeah. and so on and so forth. I've been uncomfortable being labeled in, in any particular one because I've educated myself to be able to have a much bigger impact on all of them. And so now much to both of our amusement, I no longer even consider myself a physical preparation coach. <clears throat> and and have you have you ever considered or, or sat down or whatever, have you ever like tried to think of what would be an appropriate title for what you do? You know, it's funny, the I've obviously I've written articles and I've used the term program management and that's a familiar term. It's used in the corporate world and the high performance consulting communities and so on. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know that I've. I don't know that I've really concluded upon an appropriate terminology because the the sports world in the, in the professional context is such a new profession, and this is this sort of takes you into a glimpse of the, my my larger picture thinking. If we roll back the clock in time, we can go back over two thousand years and look at the beginning of professional curriculums that led to the evolution of definitive definitive forms of professional development in theological study, philosophical study, mathematical study, scientific study, and more. And clearly 500 years forward of that, when we enter the realm of the Middle Ages, we saw powerful advancements in all those realms of bursting growth of advancement multilaterally. So we can, with, without argument, trace back 
the professional ranks of a variety of high-level disciplinary courses of study, such as the ones I just mentioned. Mm. And while sporting activities have existed since the ancient Greek Olympics and more, clearly undocumented history that goes back farther, the profession of sport and definitive aspects of sport coaching on any sort of comparable level to that which would rival the mathematical study and scientific study and philosophical study and so on, going back to the Middle Ages and earlier, has not existed in sport until just about the last 100 years and to a level that more closely resembles today, maybe even the last 50 or 60 years. And of course, things advance in all fields as time moves forward. By comparison, however, the sport world is about a day old compared to all these other time-tested uh, professional disciplines. And as a result, what we are seeing and what we have seen in sport, to the best of anyone's perception, on this larger time scale, has not even scratched the surface. So. This is the perspective, you know, I have my Global Sport Concepts website that deals with a lot of this picture, big picture, exploded view frame of thinking. And if you, if you accept this, then you also have to accept that sports, regardless of the perceived level of excellence that anyone perceives in, in any realm of coaching, not limited to one particular discipline of coaching, is only the tip of the iceberg what we must what we must take a look at is what might a scientist or a mathematician or a philosopher in the 1500s what might have their frame of thinking been relative to the powerful growth that was being experienced and place that into the framework of thinking now and this is a lot of what I speak about because here we are in the absolute birth of organized, formalized, advanced, progressive, technical thinking in terms of the development of sport, we are at the absolute infancy of it. And so we must be comfortable with the fact that to rival what has happened, for instance, in any number of scientific or mathematical realms, we must look ahead maybe 500 years, maybe 1,000 years, and contemplate what sports might be thought of and how they may be addressed in their preparation because we are merely in the very beginning we, we are a baby who has not yet learned to walk yet as far as I'm concerned yeah, yeah. so, so. And, and how how do you envision that changing James oh time it's uh, I'm a I'm a very big enthusiast of physics and I have been since my college days where I, would, I was developing a collection of a physics library despite my formal studies in musicianship. And this has happened throughout time in the scientific community. Galileo represents a very interesting story that is, that is akin to what I see happening with sport insofar as clearly Galileo did not develop or he did he was not the inventor of the telescope, however he developed it, 
via educating himself insofar as he could generate his own lenses, which then enhanced the power of what he could see into the observable universe. Heliocentric theory, which describes the sun or a star being the center of the universe, those observations were made uh, pre predating the birth of Christ, if you believe in that, if you're a religious-minded individual. Uh, geocentric theory, which suggests that the earth is the center of the universe, was suggested and adopted by the church because it made sense, again, if you're a religious-minded individual that believes in a higher power, it makes sense that a higher power, if they created the earth, then it, therefore it must be the center of the observable universe. Well, even though the heliocentric theorists were making their observations 300 BC, it wasn't until the late 1500s, early 1600s, when individuals such as Galileo, Kepler, and others made it observations to the contrary, clearly through observing. And so in a letter to Kepler, Galileo wrote during his period of house arrest, and he was so highly respected by the church that as opposed to being punished more severely as a heretic for his claims that the earth in fact was not the center of the observable universe, they placed him on house arrest as an old man only after he had to concede to the church's views, essentially to save his own life. Yeah. So during the period of house arrest, he wrote a letter to Kepler, and part of that letter include, included a quote that I've committed to memory and I use over and over again, and it applies exactly to the question you just asked me, and absolutely to this realm and the problems that we face in sport, clearly not limited to sport. Many other professionals could adopt this as well. And the quote goes as follows. My dear Kepler, what shall we make of the learned here, who replete with the pertinacity of the asp, have steadfastly refused to take a glance through the telescope? Shall we laugh or shall we cry? So, it sums it up, because what he was simply observing through the telescope as undeniable fact and wanting to share with the world, the world was not ready to adopt. Simply look through the telescope and see for yourself. So all these things that I say, as you know, Robbie, we went over these at your clinic in Ireland, and all the consulting that I've done worldwide, I've never had a scientist, a coach, an athlete, a physiotherapist, no one has ever disagreed with a single thing I've had to say. To the opposite, it has been, wow, that makes it, that's almost simple. It, it makes perfect sense. Why isn't it happening? And as Galileo and others, you know, think of the time when most of the world viewed the, the earth as being flat, and all it took was someone to sail across it or circumnavigate it to show that, no, in fact, it's not flat. The question is, how long did it take to convince the world that it wasn't flat, even though clear observations and experience revealed the earth is not flat? So we can go through and find analogy after analogy after analogy, the reality is that in this context of sport, we are at the very infancy of it. So you have myself and others who share similar views or parallel views with different targets that have these things to say, and the reality is there's going to be nothing other than time that's going to be required for 
such concepts to be wholesale accepted, and ultimately the question is how much time. I, I, I suppose in a way, in, in some regards, it is sort of happening in some individuals. You, you do see a lot of individuals who realize that they just can't simply be, a, you know, and I'm going to say strength and condition, I know that's not the correct title in, in your mind, but you see a lot of individuals now are saying, you know, we don't just do strength and condition, we realize that we have to be nutritionists, we realize that we have to be re- rehabilitation specialists. In, in, in essence, you are seeing a lot of people realizing that it has to be a far more holistic approach to this whole idea of pre- preparation of a, of a sport athlete. I think it's a, I think it's an eventuality, Robbie, yeah. and I can say that even in the eleven years now that I've been aware and involved, I've definitely seen more of that. The problem is the current architecture of the sporting climate, particularly at the higher levels, when there's greater economic viability and implications, yeah. cr- creates such a compartmentalized framework that the individuals with the ultimate veto decision-making power are the ones who are least qualified to make those decisions. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that's really the biggest problem because if and when such a more appropriate approach is taken, whether that'll be in my lifetime, our lifetime or not, there's going to have to be a drastic reformatting of the current architecture of sport organizations. I believe that titles will change, uh, but more importantly than titles is going to be the working skill sets. Yeah. And the, the reason why I referenced architecture and general contracting is because that is what the sport world needs to make the most significant impact. We see it and we've seen it in, in the realm of building for a long, long time, yeah. you have to have the architect to create the schematics and have the all the all the expertise that's involved with the scheme. In order to actualize it, we must have the general contractor who has a viable understanding of all subcontracting realms. Yes, yes. There, yeah. There's no significant, no structure of significance in the world has ever been erected based upon the contribution of only mm. subcontractors. Yeah. Ironically, every sport in the world, particularly team sport, to this day and of the highest levels, regardless of sport, is comprised of only subcontractors. Yeah. It's it's funny too. Just this is actually going a bit off topic, but it, it it's kind of just striking a, I suppose as the saying goes, striking a chord with me. Like y- you're not only seeing this in sport. Like like you've you've essentially just described conventional medicine, and you've also described society as a whole. Just there, uh, like would like would you agree on that yourself? Even absolutely. As I as I said earlier, there's a lot of other professions that would benefit from this same way of restructured thinking and even equally as important change in operations. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, uh, yeah, it's, uh, no, I, I, yeah, fully, fully agree with what you said there. I know you said you're, you're essentially self-taught, but, um, like influences, 
who who would have been your biggest influence? Uh, maybe maybe if you have no direct influence, but indirectly, like who have you learned from? Who have been your biggest influences? Well, I I could not restrict those. I could not restrict names only to sport related study because that would obviate what I think some of my most meaningful education has consisted of outside of sport. If if I limit it only to sport. Clearly, we'd be looking at a handful of the more prominent Russian sports scientists, uh, the first of which would be Yuri Voroshansky, the late Voroshansky, who I worked with personally as an editor of some of his final publications. Clearly, I adopted a great deal of his framework of thinking amidst many of the others who most people are familiar with. Yeah. Uh, from a track and field standpoint, as we know, heavily influenced by the late Charlie Francis. Uh, those w that would be a very narrow and tight focus on sport individuals that have, without question, influenced specific sport applications of my way of thinking. Yeah. As I stated, I'd have to branch well outside of direct sport applications because if all the research I've done of various, particularly physicists, whether it's Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein... Penrose, Feynman, Hawking, uh, you know, obviously these are big names that are more heavily published, uh, have been massively influential on my way of thinking. Most of what's most interesting that I can discuss with people has very little to do with anything that I picked up from a sport-related individual and much more to do with what I've pulled from the world of physics in addition to the arts and music, which constitutes my formal education yeah yeah and, and just just from the physics perspective what is it that you find that 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 stimulates you on that end of things is, is it quantum physics is it is it is it einstein's like photoelectric effect is general you know his general or his general relativity like what is it in physics that that has that has stimulates you indeed all of the above robbie because if we look at the essence of what it takes to become an accomplished physicist, regardless in the quantum world, in the thermodynamic world, in the, in the aeronautical world, in the acoustic world, so on and so forth, we are looking at the aggregate of an exploded view and a highly specialized view in one, which is the ultimate merger. Because by virtue of the study of matter and energy, we constitute the physical universe. So everything, there is no bigger picture view than that, particularly of astrophysics and so on, when the study of the very, very, very big general relativity, etc. However, the alternative to that is the quantum world and everything in between. And clearly any high-level physicist regardless of the variety of specialties that exist under the heading of physics, has at least, at the very least, a working understanding of the very, very, very big and the very, very, very small. And as where they fall within that continuum in terms of their respective field of specialty clearly is up to them and aptitudes that are associated. So if we adopt that way of thinking, which is what I have done in sport, I have adopted the very, very, very big global sport concept frame of reference 
in which I assume an exploded view and I see everything that has to do with the preparation of an athlete. And then what I have selected to narrow in on tightly is movement. So therefore, I never wanted that to be considered strength and conditioning. I no longer want it to be considered physical preparation, but simply movement. Because if an athlete is performing a technical tactical maneuver, they are moving. If they are doing something that is not particularly technical specific or tactical specific, they are still moving, whether it's in a weight room or on a field or in the water or whatever. And if they are actively or passively recovering or regenerating from a particular muscular, skeletal, soft tissue pathology, they are also moving. So on the very tight level, I've specialized in movement. And on the very big level, I, I, you know, as, as my website suggests, Global Sport Concepts, it encapsulates everything. One very interesting thing that I learned from you, you know, two, three years ago when I was, and, and I still am developing as a coach in this field, was this idea of training efficiency. And I know this drives you nuts. I know you're like, you know, the average coach or athlete, they're all, they always think more is better, harder, harder. And, you know, you all speak about efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. I have one of your DVDs that I, that I got from, uh, um, Joseph uh, jo- Johnson is that his name Joseph Johnson is it that's right and um, it was a really really good DVD and once again it was kind of like when I watched your information first it was so far away from my paradigm but like again I, I've kind of studied your material now for the previous two three years so I've, I've kind of I've learned to to apply it and understand it a bit more but when you spoke about efficiency and the many roads to Rome I was like you know, it just it kind of it, it was kind of like just a penny drop. And so, can you can you speak to the listeners about training efficiency? And particularly, I remember when you were here last time in Ireland. Well, it was I think it was your first time in Ireland as well. But when right. you, when you were here, my friend and back in our house, he he spoke to you about you know you were training a rugby player, and you were saying you know oh like we only work at about 70 percent of one RM of his squat. And my friend goes, how does that make him stronger? And you were kind of talking to him about. You know, it's it's actually about efficiency, and and you don't actually need to go maximal all the time to stimulate the results. You know, it's this minimum effective dose. So, can you speak about training efficiency? Right. Well, we can we can aim the discussion of efficiency at a variety of targets. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you you, you take it where you want to go. Sure. So it it really comes down to movement efficiency, and if we trace the path that. The path of events that leads towards the eventuality of movement efficiency, we are then unable to separate ourselves from the concept of efficiency as it applies to all activities on that path. So the end result is all that matters. We know this. If we're looking at any athlete in any discipline, we are ultimately wanting to see first and foremost efficiency of movement and depending upon the sport that will mean different things in terms of the body links that are involved the energy systems etc if we look along the path that leads towards that economization of movement we then must accept that efficiency is a common thread along the way and so one step along the way with any athlete to one degree or another is, quote-unquote, strength development. And what that means 
and how it is actualized will vary depending upon the sport in question. Yeah. The economization or the efficiency, the optimization of efficiency of strength development is interestingly enough and ironically, and this kind of ties into the obscure strength and conditioning phraseology, is that it is the easiest problem to solve. If, if we isolate the problem of sport development into all of its subdivisions, all of the subdivisions of movement and speed and endurance and flexibility and technical skill and mobility and on and on and on and on, we can really subdivide and subdivide and subdivide. And of all of those, all components in the spectrum of preparation, the most mindless one, in my view, is strength preparation. The reason being, it takes such a low magnitude load to further one's force production. And it is not until one reaches a level that is essentially very close to their human performance limits, which doesn't even apply to any athlete other than one whose discipline is the maximization of force, mm. such as a powerlifter, a weightlifter, aspects of strongman, highland games, etc. Those are the only disciplines in which success is defined by strength preparation. Because even, uh, for instance, even a shot put athlete who in the, in the world of sport are arguably the most powerful and high force producing athletes that are not specific to a purely strength discipline with a barbell, uh, their results are not defined by force production because the most accomplished shot put athletes do not need to be world-class bench press specialists or squat specialists or Olympic weightlifting specialists. Granted, they are all very strong and impressive in those realms that are specific to the powerlifter and to the weightlifter and so on, but their sport results do not hinge on the performance of those tasks. Yeah, yeah. So it? for all other athletes, the farther away we get, whether it's in any other domain within track and field or team sports or combat sports, um, you know, in the water, swimming, rowing, it, all of them, the concept of strength development in, in a wholesale way, depending on where we aim this, this discussion, can become less and less and less and less significant. No one denies that the anatomical structure of the body must possess a certain degree of resilience to the repetitive motion stresses that are specific to any degree of sport. So this is not to diminish the value of quote-unquote strength. What, what this is to suggest is that it's such a simple problem to solve if for no other reason than we accept what Zatsiorski published 30 years ago, which demonstrated how the small muscles of the body are able to be are able to experience maximal motor recruitment with loads as low as 50 percent of the maximum maximum of force and with the large muscles taking it up to 80 percent so so based upon that alone 
and the intrinsic link between motor unit recruitment and improved force production due to the more efficient innervation of the muscle fibers, we know that any athlete, with the exception of the athletes whose sports are defined, excuse me, that are defined by strength efforts, such as the powerlifting and weightlifting and the other ones, can make their entire living by never exceeding 80% of a, either of a known or a, of a predicted one repetition maximum, they could spend their entire career working at 80% and below and get as strong as they'll ever need to be in, in a sense that the strength is measured, which is a whole nother problem. So, and do, do, do you think this is why the likes of uh, Bondarchuk has had such success with his athletes? Well, I would go so far, Ravi, is to say I don't think I know for certain that is why. Because he, a long time ago, amongst others, realized that it is not the defining characteristic of that discipline. And yeah. it's great that you brought him up because he is a throws coach and clearly his specialty is the hammer which does not have as much force implication in the tonic sense as the shot, yet still there's tremendous wattages being produced. And so special strength training has very big implications. And yes, due to the luxuries that were afforded to those high-level coaches in the Soviet Union in that era of just being able to work with such high numbers of talented athletes afforded great data collection and then subsequently when the initiative is being taken to to boast the best athletes in the world, you the eventuality is you are going to be asking the right questions. Mm. And so clearly he was one specialist who was asking the right questions and ultimately realized that, you know what, quote-unquote strength training is not the difference maker. There are many other viable and more more viable problems that must be solved in order to reach the apex of sport results, for instance, in the throws. So, so I don't think I know in his case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a topic I absolutely love discussing, and, uh, and particularly with individuals like yourself and Chad Wesley Smith, because uh, you guys just you guys get it with regards to ESD. Um, can you just discuss, you know, I suppose particularly with you, uh, discuss energy system development and sort of your grind with like American football and A-lactic aerobic sports? Yeah, well, it's, I framed it. I recently wrote an article for Christopher Glazer and Free Lap Timing Systems in which I went into some detail with uh, with energy system development. The, the issue is, and this is tied into the fact that the, as I said, sports is such a new profession, and and sports is still heavily married to pedestrian, to lay people. Lay people are operating at the highest level of sport currently, and one problem with that are the is the associated archaic way of thinking that applies. To the actual structure of sport, all you know, if we go back to the early 1600s, 
when Galileo was looking through his developed lenses in his telescope and he's looking at the planetary systems and so on, it didn't take long for him to realize, in fact, the rest of these planets are not revolving around the Earth. Well, similarly, if you just, and this is something that Charlie Francis said that resonated strong with me, look at the players, not the game, which in effect means movement. Watch movement and nothing else. Movement. And I entered the profession with this way of thinking. So while I, while I was chronologically older, I entered the profession at 30 years old. I entered only being concerned with movement. And the way that the energy system problem ties into this is if you're only looking at movement, even if you don't have any diagnostic machinery or knowledge of diagnostics as they pertain to blood lactate measurements, etc., simply if you're looking at uh, movement and you have a stopwatch, and you understand movement, you understand how the vast majority of, let's take team sports, for example, are constituted by either very fast movement or relatively slow movement. And armed with no other information alone, you know that the predominance is elastic activity and usually in a much smaller relative percentage, which it is, so there'll be a smaller volume of the fastest possible movements in most sports and a greater volume of slower movements. Now, where, in my view, where the popularity of lactic loading came into play is because, as I said, the layperson mentality recognizes fatigue, visceral fatigue, and they associate that with job well done. So it's no different in any commercial gym where any average fitness enthusiast prides themselves on achieving exhaustion and associates it with accomplishment. It's the same layperson mentality that infects the sport community like a virus and it creates pleasure and a sense of accomplishment in athletes as well, certainly within coaches, to see athletes running to exhaustion or performing calisthenics to exhaustion or doing something else to exhaustion. It's, a, it's inextricably linked to the misdirected thinking that suggests that not only are physical developments being accomplished, but also psychological developments of resolve and tenacity, etc. Unfortunately, this is completely misplaced and at the expense of movement inefficiency. Hmm. So, no, I'll take it back, very few coaches who are operating at the apex of autonomy decision-making are even able to articulate these considerations of structure. And so therefore, the layperson mentality that affects even the highest levels cannot be separated from the ineffectual methodics we see athletes being exposed to. Hence, a, such a large volume of 
of lactic loading for sport disciplines that either have little or zero reliance upon lactic systems development. It's it's funny too because I get a lot of coaches and you just said it there too. Like when you when you kind of break down the energy system stuff and explain it to them, and this is more so towards coaches who 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 coach in a lactic aerobic uh, sports, and you know and, and you know they but. By the time you explain all this to them and they understand and they go, I understand that, but like you know, like they still need that bit of psychological, you know, dogging every now and again. They need a bit of that tough training. And my kind of thing that I always say to them is like, it's it's about like making the athletes themselves understand that. Listen, when you train this system, one, it's the wrong energy system. Two, it's inefficient. And three, it's going to require far like so much recoverability in comparison to if we kept training efficient and trained you as an alactic aerobic athlete and then i always finish off by saying if i was one of your athletes and, and i trained under you and and know what i know now and we did loads of lactate based work i wouldn't think that i wouldn't think oh psychologically i feel better for this i'd be like this is making me worse because i understand the energy systems of my sport now like and then i keep trying to say uh, say to certain coaches like this it's about training smart not training hard I agree. I agree. The, what, what, from, from the psychological standpoint, again, due to the layperson foundations of coaching, this knowledge is not on the forefront. Yeah. And behavioral, psychological formalization occurs relatively early in life. Yeah. So depending, yeah. depending upon the age level that any particular coach is responsible for developing, once, especially once we get to the uh, high-level amateur ranks and certainly the professional ranks, that that ship has sailed, so to speak. Any any developments psychologically will absolutely not be influenced through any physical measures. And I would argue, based upon my personal experience in the selection course for the for navy seal training which i went through twice <clears throat> unsuccessfully however the point at which i made it if you're, if anyone is familiar with the training i graduated hell week which which was enough to be put through a lot of physical stress and to realize what is involved with enduring such magnitude of psychological and physical stress and I can say from experience and from observation that you either have it or you don't, and any degree of physical stress challenge that an individual is able to endure has to do with psychological attributes that they possessed before they ever took on that physical task. And so you said it yourself, you recognize in yourself that you have this ability to make it through any lactic workload, which means you know that about yourself beforehand, and then it's simply a measure of doing it. Mm. And what, what coaches fail to realize is that anyone who they've ever considered to be, to use the military terminology that's so popular, one of their warriors, one of their soldiers, etc., they were that way in their head before they ever met that coach. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Like, so, it, it, it's sorry to cut across you, but yeah, I, like, I 100% agree with what you're saying and fully understand it too. Like, 
those early developmental years essentially what you know what you can call developmental conditioning and you know so much of the population from my point of view of where i am right now is just that so many people are, are brought up in the kind of glass half empty life is tough it's dogged therefore you know if you, if you suffer more you're a better person and everyone has this oh i have to we have to suffer more and then psychologically we're going to be tougher we're going to be harder whereas as i as i just said a few moments ago now that i consciously under, understand energy system just going back to sports development and and you know you obviously you could definitely dwell this into uh, life and society but going back to sports the fact that i have consciously understand energy systems now and i've rewired my subconscious sort of beliefs that harder was better whereas no better is better uh you know th- that's how now i look at that type of training isn't going to make me better at all it's actually going to make me worse and then so psychologically my perspective's completely changed whereas if i do that lactate type work i'm like this is making me worse not better whereas everyone else is like yeah this is what we need so and it's the same then when it carries back to life like people think oh if i work 12 hours a day and i just struggle by you know i it's like what alan watts the great philosopher calls the game of one upsmanship you know people go oh i work 12 hours i work harder i suffer more therefore i'm a better human and it's because of this developmental condition that that so many people have had you know grown up in their lives and, and as you say they carry that into their their sport or for you as you said when they went to the the army like they were already in that place before before they got there without question without question uh something i've always wanted to ask you i've asked you in person obviously when you were in ireland but something i've always wanted to ask you when you came to my podcast was your views on olympic lifts and i had a really great conversation with, with chad wesley on this chad wesley smith and uh, you know i actually started the question off saying i know james isn't a fan but i see it's in your it's in your juggernaut method um for football so like i just want want you know want you to, to to kind of address this for the listeners you know i know with regards to preparation for for the sport athlete or athletes that really don't do olympic lifting you're not a, a, a fan of olympic lifting you believe there's other more efficient ways so if you want to touch on that that's correct i i should start with saying that i am i am a true enthusiast of the sport of yeah. olympic weightlifting and i've trained an Olympic weightlifter, actually I had an Olympic weightlifter come live with me, who I trained a number of years ago, and I have a, I really enjoy the sport. That being said, alternatively, I do not find use for Olympic weightlifting derivative exercises in the training of most other athletes. There are simply many other movement forms that in my view are more useful and certainly more efficient than any any number of jerk snatch or clean derivatives. Uh, I should also go on to say that most individuals who utilize jerk snatch or clean derivatives have a very poor understanding of their mechanical execution. I'll use an example. In the athletes who I have worked with, and I have had them perform jerk, snatch, clean, clean and jerk variations, was only because I knew that they were going, this has been when I've been in the private setting, and I knew that they were going to be required, either in their professional or in their collegiate sporting experience, to perform those exercises with regularity under the resident strength coach. And so therefore I took it upon myself to teach them properly. And so one example, I'm thinking of an American football player who I worked with 
who was heading off to a Division I collegiate program that was going to be, be performing the full gamut of snatch, clean and jerk, cleans, etc. And so I put him on a program that included all of those exercises, and unlike how most particular strength coaches address those movements, I had him take on the training similarly to if I was developing a very young weightlifter, chronologically speaking. So even though this athlete was 18 years old, six days a week, he was performing the lifts in some variation and at very moderate intensities, very moderate, which was in mandatory because of the frequency that I was having him train and mandatory because his technical development was very much lacking. So the end result after what only amounted to about eight weeks was he went from performing a horrendous, horrendous 100, uh, where was he at? 100 and, 120 kilos in the clean with horrendous mechanics that we see most athletes using in which they reverse curl it, they, they spread their stance out to a sumo, super wide, it's, I can't even speak about it, it makes me ill. And after eight weeks in the clean, he went from a horrendous 120 kilos to a picture-perfect 143 kilos. Mm. And the only reason is because we drilled sub-maximal efforts that gradually accumulated in intensity with great frequency, and every single repetition he performed was with mechanical efficiency. Now, if it's going to be done, that, in my view, is how it must be done. I must add, specific to what you brought up in your question, is that it does not have to be done for an athlete to reach their apex of sport results in every single sport except Olympic weightlifting. Mm. I, I prefer to deal with the non-debatables because I do not enjoy debating. <laughs> what? Like, like Galileo, I take pleasure in making observations and sharing those observations. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in debating. And there is no debate, there is none, that what is essential for every athlete in every sport at every level to perform to reach world-class results ultimately is void of Olympic weightlifting with the single exception of Olympic weightlifters. And to that, we must add, add a variety of other forms of training. Olympic weightlifting is not the bad guy to the exclusion of others. There's a dozens of physical actions that any athlete in the world does not need to perform when we look at the specifics of their structure and then weigh them against the structure of that activity. So that's the non-debatables, and I prefer to remain within that realm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a very sort of, I suppose, I know you said you don't like debate, but a debated topic, but again, once, once I've kind of listened to the likes of yourself, 
and Chad and, and, and a few others you know it's again what you guys say makes sense it's funny uh, Chad Chad on our podcast you know I was saying to him people always say Olympic lifting you know uh, you know, or people all say Olympic lifters are really explosive from Olympic lifting and Chad goes no no they, they, they're good at Olympic lifting because they are explosive and I was just like ah, touche sir it's very good well what, what I would add to that is that no Olympic weightlifter is explosive the highest level Olympic weightlifters are explosive yeah yeah, yeah. and and as one prerequisite clearly they have to be blessed with a high percentage of white muscle fiber and favorable tendon insertions and morphobiomechanical, so on and so forth, clearly. Yeah. However, however, so must many other athletes, so much throwers in track and field and jumpers, etc. The It is the, what goes hand in hand with high levels of explosiveness are world-class results in Olympic weightlifting. Mm. To, to suggest that simply performing, you know, I can walk down the street and find some 65-year-old woman and teach her to perform a snatch with a broomstick. So because she's performing a snatch with a broomstick, does that mean, oh, that's an explosive 65-year-old woman? No. The, the, uh, the weightlifters who are explosive or the individuals who are explosive that are also performing Olympic weightlifting variations are explosive because one, they already possess the morphobiomechanical prerequisites such as fiber constitution, and they are very powerful on those exercises. The simple performance of those exercises means almost nothing. It's the method of execution. Yeah, there was something I brought up too, which which Chad, you were just saying there about the you know sixty-five year old broomstick is that. You know, I often hear people saying again, you know, Olympic lifts, Olympic lifts make you explosive. And I, I was saying to Chad, it, it was more so kind of to get his thought on it and, and you give your opinion on it too. Like, to, to, to be able to get a benefit from the Olympic lifts, like surely there there comes a point or there, there surely has to be a low to body weight ratio where they where where there is a benefit from them. But what, what I'm saying is that I'd say the vast majority of athletes that, that do do them probably never get enough sufficient stimulus from them to probably get any explosive development strength f- from them is it, does that make sense you know I, I often I just often see people like they're doing like hand clean variations but they're only like doing like maybe 50% of their body weight for 5 reps and I'm like is that really carrying over would it not be just better just throwing a med ball as hard as they could like you know if well, it, go yeah go ahead yeah well, well the, the real question is what is the objective And what we know, what I know from experience, and what has actually also, I I don't like to quote research because anyone can quote any research to support an argument. Hmm. That being said, there has been research performed on high-level athletes that has shown the very low correlation between exercises such as cleans and the vertical jump. And what I can speak towards is personal experience not only in the development, but also in the observation of the highest level performers in whether it's speed activities or jumping activities. And I've, I've both developed and witnessed exceptional performances in, in exercises such as vertical jumps and sprints and so on, void of the performance of Olympic weightlifts. And, and, and again, 
we must not limit this concept of inefficient training to only Olympic weightlifting. There's, yeah, there's a yeah. variety. You know, the same argument could be made. Oh, you need you need to uh, everybody who's everybody who's strong in their hips also squats. That would be just as ignorant to say yeah. as anyone. The most explosive athletes have are explosive because they Olympic weightlift. That's naive. Just as if we were to say the athletes with the strongest legs all have big squats, yeah, yeah. that would be equally as naive. And there's a, a host of other analogies that we could make. Mm, uh, right. The biggest thing, again, is what is the structure of sport and what are the essentials? And then slowly look, slowly work backwards from the essentials until you've completed the picture. And what we find is with, with basically every sport the degree in which we must work backwards from the essentials, that distance is smaller the more well-selected the athlete is for that sport. Yeah, I, I, I think as well, going back to kind of what we discussed in the first quarter of the, or the first kind of third of the show, um, you know, about this kind of taking more of a 50,000 square foot view rather than, you know, being very narrow in one specific area. Again, like, you know, people, you know, you know this better than anyone. People would say, you know, you have your strength training and then you have your speed work and then you have your energy system development. And one, again, kind of profound thing I've heard you say a couple of years ago, and again, it was so far removed from where I was at the time, just in my own sort of understanding of things. You were like, sprinting is strength training. And then I was kind of like, what? You know, because you know, most people are like, speed is speed and strength is strength. And, and you were like, sprinting is strength training. And then I listened to like Dan Faff talking about this thrower who couldn't do any lifting because he had a he had a spine issue and all he did was throws and jumps and like he went in one day to the gym and did like i don't know some bench or something and like you know two and a half times body weight bench never lifts weights in his life and like dan path then kind of drove home that message of you know that these act jumps sprints these things get you strong as well like and you got to stop seeing these as separate like entities from other things too so just even you know, like if you want to maybe discuss on that for a second, I just found, you know, found that sort of real kind of like a more another light bulb moment. Again, realizing that, you know, all this stuff is an, under the own, it's under that one umbrella, you know, it's, it's, they're not these separate things. Like, Absolutely. And, and I definitely owe Dan credit for hammering home this concept that movement is, is first, last and everything in the middle. The most yeah. important thing, uh, Dan, 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 Dan has used the phrase movement drives the bus mm. and all of it is movement and depending upon the character of movement depends upon the proportionality and contribution of force so even the you know one of the fastest movements in all of sport is max velocity sprinting and that integer or that metric becomes even of a higher value, the faster the athlete is. So clearly the fastest or the greatest integers of max velocity are sold with the fastest 100-meter sprinters in the world. And what we know is that the fastest 100-meter sprinters in the world, at the moment of ground impact, at max velocity, will experience upwards of five times body weight in less than one-tenth of a second. Triple jumpers 
on the second contact can experience up to seven times body weight. Now, and again, in a fraction of a second. Now, anything that's done impressively in a weight room, no matter what, how many kilos might be on a bar for a squat or for a clean or so on, cannot begin to approach the relationship between force and time of these more dynamic actions, which is which is only one argument against the concept that maximal strength has anything to do with world class speed production. Like it's it's sorry, sorry to come across you, but like like you say that to anyone, and it's like so like no, that so goes against everything we've been taught. But like it's like when you when you make that like statement there, like listen, five times of their body weight is going through their joints at at this velocity. Nothing in the weight room compares to this. This 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 could be as you said a thing against it. Like it's just you know again you, as you just said a while ago, I don't debate. I just I just point out things that are clear facts. That's that's it. You know, and and and, and as far as. You know, as far as me saying something and someone, the reaction that you just said, wait, that goes against everything. Welcome, you know, welcome to my world. That's been the last 11 years. Of, uh, of, it's, it's really interesting, though, when, when you look at it in terms of these facts, because, you know, Charlie Francis pointed this out. There is no sub 9.8 second sprinter. Let me rephrase that. Every sub nine eight point second sprinter has been part of a general weights program. Yeah, yeah. That tells you something. So what's the one thing that every one of them has in common without debate? Extraordinary genetic gifts. Yeah, yeah. From there, variability is introduced. What was the loading of their track work? What was the proportion of track versus something not on the track, what was their therapy schedule, all of a sudden the variability explodes outwards. But what all of them have in common is extraordinary genetic gifts. And it, the same thing goes for every other athlete, particularly regarding sports that are closely linked to pure physical outputs. We, we get into more gray area with the team sports because you don't have to be anywhere near the fastest or the strongest or the most fit, or the most powerful, or the most flexible to be the very best in a team sport because it is an aggregate of all of those qualities. Just, uh, and I've, I've only two more questions because I have to go now in the next 10, 15 minutes to go to the gym. But it's just, again, this is actually going off topic. I was recently at a Franz Bosch course. Uh, you, you're familiar with Franz. Yeah. And, and Franz's stuff is so far removed from like, most people's paradigm including my paradigm and just going back to this discussion now about you know maximum strength you know maybe not necessarily being the be all end all with regards to the support of speed um, speed entities Franz is completely against traditional strength work like as in like a squat where you go down really slow and up fast really slow, you know to do with this idea of like slack of the muscle and kind of the elastic reactive properties within the muscle and you know the of the tendon complex and whatnot and you know he was you know he showed us some of the stuff he does in the weight room which like is to be honest it's fucking to, to me looking from where i am now it's it's so far removed from what i know but kind of listen to you there speaking of what you just said that was a real kind of holy shit another aha moment some of his stuff is starting to make sense and he also speaks about the need to make things more autonomic 
removed from consciousness and he's like all our coaching is is consciousness where 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 the athlete is 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 taking our our sort of verbal cues consciously and we need to understand the athlete has to feel these things but anyway but just back to his like his his discussion on he's completely against traditional strength training like what what would your take be on that like he, he he's even he's even gone as far as to say he doesn't do any counter movement type jumps he believes that that promotes sort of wrong strategies for those kind of elastic properties in the, in the muscle and all like all he does is like these real shallow hip angles you know popping up into a box kind of like a very high hand clean up into a box stuff like this like really sort of specific stuff in the weight room um so like just like what's your take on any of that if, if that made sense yeah well i i have a lot of respect for franz bosch clearly he's a very smart man he's been asked some very important questions uh, i would say thematically I agree with a lot of, of what he has to share. Uh, specifically, there there are I, I would disagree with him in certain in certain cases. Thematically, however, I think it's very important. And and I've brought I said this earlier with respect to the way that strength is measured yeah. and the, the strength community. You know, I wrote this a few years ago. I wrote the article program management the criminal nature of its absence, and it, it got a lot of views and, and feedback and so on. And what I illustrate in it is, or, or what, and what I will say now more specifically is, how is the strength measured in relation to its involvement with the sport? And the, as I indicated in the program management article, it's my opinion that the single worst influence on athletes and sport is the strength coaching industry it has been the most damaging of them all yeah, yeah. and i you know i, I described that it i mean i think i i'd sorry to come across you again i i um, i don't know if you said it in that article but i i know when when, when we met in dublin like you know you, you went as far as to say like s- some of s- some of the coaching going on out there is like it's criminal like what some coaches are getting away with with people's bodies like absolutely absolutely and if we look at the the endeavor the quest to become stronger and stronger on these barbell exercises we must look at what is even the relevance in comparison to the sport requirements so clearly uh, when Franz Bosch, I'm familiar with the, the, the subject matter that you're referring to because in many times he's referring to the specific context of elastic development and its relevance towards speed qualities. And absolutely, this is why all of the sub 9.8 second sprinters perform general rate uh, strength programs and most of them, their weight programs were of, of distant memory in terms of even their general strength potential with those general movements relative to, you know, Ben Johnson's the exception who is incredibly strong whereas all the other sub 9.8 you know, uh, to name a few Usain Bolt, Nesta Carter Johan Blake, Tim Montgomery and so on, none of them were of the caliber of Ben Johnson with weights Ben Johnson had problems with his knees, and so he did not perform any jump training. So he was sprints and weights. So to get back to the context here, the means by which force training is ultimately measured is through a biomechanical similarity to the way that it is relevant in the sports structure. 
So that is why you see Franz Bosch being a proponent of joint movement amplitudes and subsequent force generating capabilities that are quite specific to the position of those joints and the kinematics associated with the movements of the specific sport activities. Now, in my view, there is absolutely a place for that. However, to get completely away from general training, I think you can run into different problems. So I, I prefer not to be exclusionary to any particular realm and instead simply adjust the proportions according to both individual athlete needs as well as sport needs. Uh, so, <clears throat> sorry, that my, my, there's someone outside my house he's picking me up to go to the gym, so I'm going to have to leave it at this for the last question. I'm going to have to get you back on to answer the bilateral deficit because the, the bilateral deficit was, was something we spoke about when you were here last and I, I liked your answer on that. So maybe maybe I'll get you up maybe on the phone tomorrow or, or the next day and we'll do that quickly for 10, 10 minutes or so. Sure. Uh, just uh, resources, James, just for, for any kind of... Because again, like, you know, you're kind of one of these guys that I know when I first saw you, you know, I was like, holy shit, this guy speaks sense. Uh, like when I saw you first it was kind of like okay this guy's too smart I don't understand a thing he's saying but I know some of the stuff he's saying makes sense you know so for, for a lot of the younger coaches out there maybe who listen to this they're kind of thinking well this guy is like way out there uh, you know where, what would be some good resources for them to kind of start integrating into some some of the stuff you've spoken about here I, I think personally myself I would kind of maybe recommend Verkashansky's newer book it's kind of a nice easy read if you get into that type of thing um, what, what kind of resources would you recommend Char Charlie Francis being another one too but aside from Verkashansky and Charlie would you have any other resources for the guys well what I would oh, okay quickly what I would say is I have a resources page on my other website athleteconsulting.net I'll put that I'll, I'll put your website or website into the show notes so I would just say look at those resources but more importantly Robbie what I would recommend to anyone is to be honest with yourself in whether you have the aptitude to make a relevant contribution to the profession. Because if you do not have the aptitude, you'll be, you'll be fighting against yourself, and it may very well be likely that a different profession is more suitable towards your intrinsic skill sets. Okay, that's, that's very good advice. And actually, I have about two or three minutes do you want to do you want to touch on bilateral deficit for two or three minutes, or do you want to wait till we get a little bit deeper into it? I'd say that's probably better for an, another discussion. Okay, okay. Well, that's great because the listeners will know that they have a part two with you. So, uh, James, for for today, that was absolutely excellent. I mean, <laughs> you know, again, it leaves me. I had two or three light bulb moments, and particularly that, like you know, sprint five times through their joints and then strength training. Oh, that was a really good part right there for me. So. Uh, I just want to say thanks a million for taking the time. Just hang online for maybe half a minute while I wrap up the show and I'll say my goodbyes to you offline. So, guys, James Smith, the thinker, absolutely, you know, wealth of knowledge. Was over here in Ireland two years ago. Um, and, you know, it was, that was a great day. It was great getting to meet him. And uh, I thank him so much for, for coming onto the podcast and giving up an hour and almost an hour and 11 minutes of his time. So, for everyone listening, Thanks for downloading the podcast. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Please leave reviews on iTunes, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Take care, stay strong, and be well.